Blog Talk Radio. Live from Southern California and broadcasting worldwide on Wealth Radio. On Tax Lawyer, prescribing a dose of truth for entrepreneurs. A voice of common sense for the small business owner. And don't get him started on saving taxes. This is the Mark Kohler Show. Mark Kohler Show. Kohler Show. Well, welcome everyone to the Mark Kohler Show today. My name is Matt Sorensen. I am your substitute host today. Mark is literally on a plane right now and unable to host this show, so... I get honored today to be with you today and host the show, which is an open forum show. Um, as many of you may know, regular listeners, open forum show, an opportunity to call in, email in, chat in, any questions you may have in the tax, legal, or business world, and we'll do our best to try and field those questions today. Um, the number, by the way, to call in, if you do have a question and you'd like to call in, is 646 200 4285. If you'd like to email in questions, which seems to be the most popular version, please make sure you email them to me. Don't send them to Mark. Um, I do already have a lot of questions emailed in to me already, but um, you can email me at matt, M-A-T, at kkoslawyers.com. M-A-T at kkoslawyers.com. And I'll try and get to your questions as we go through the show today. But thanks for being with me today. Um, I want to go over some events we have coming up, uh, some tax schedule deadlines to make sure you're all aware of. Um, we'll do a couple of tips, and then we will dive into everyone's questions and begin the open forum. So first I want to highlight an upcoming event that both Mark and I are speaking at. This is the 2015 Real Estate and Tax Summit. This is, it has been a long time since Mark and I have spoke together at the same place. I'm actually very excited for this event just because of that, because um, Mark and I have uh, spoken for many years together, but um, this will be one of the first opportunities um, in many years where we've been able to do that. We've been dividing and conquering, so to speak, over the, over the last few years, but we'll be together in Southern California um, it will be broadcast if you're not in the Southern California area. If you're there, be there. It'll be awesome, and uh, we're going to have a great time. So uh, the website you can go to is R-E-T, real estate tax, retsummit.com, um, information, and you can register there. We'll also be having Kendall Stock. He's a uh, experienced real estate investor who will be speaking with us. Mark will be speaking on his hottest tax strategies for 2015. I'll be speaking on cutting-edge strategies with your retirement or 401k in real estate. And then Kendall Stock will be talking about real estate strategies and making money um, uh, in real estate. So check out that event. Uh, it's, again, March 28th. It'll be in Irvine. Information's in our newsletter, or you can go to the event website, retsummit.com. Also, just wanted to let you know, um, as far as events, I'll be speaking this Friday in Phoenix at the Scotts, or, sorry, I'll be seeing this Friday in Phoenix at the Caliber Real Estate Investment Summit on wealth preservation, asset protection, and investing in real estate with your self-directed IRA or 401k. Uh, Mark will be speaking next on in Honolulu. Um, he always, you know, I, I speak in Phoenix where I live. Mark goes to Honolulu. To figure that out. Uh, someone's getting a good deal, but he'll be speaking with Sweep Strategies March 21st. That's a Saturday, um, an all-day event, tax and legal strategies for entrepreneurs. And then again, we have the Real Estate Summit March 28th that I mentioned earlier. Um, as far as tax deadlines, up, in, upcoming important dates, keep in mind March 16th is the corporate tax return deadline. Um, that's for uh, U.S. corporations out there. A lot of our clients have S corporations or even use, may have C corporations. Those returns are due. I can't believe it's you know it's like six days away. So uh, make sure you're on the ball on that. And if you're not filing, keep in mind you can do a six-month extension, uh, but you need to actually request permission 
So tax return extensions, you know, it's one of those things you have to get permission to file late for. You can't just file late and ask for forgiveness later. So um, file an extension if you're not ready to file your return. You can contact the accounting firm, Caney CPAs. If they're doing your return, they'll automatically be filing an extension if you need help. Um, you can contact Sandy Clark over there, um, and her email is sclark at ke-cpas.com. Also, uh, partnership returns and individual returns are coming up next month, April 15th, so uh, keep that in the back of your minds. Those are for LLCs that are partnerships or other partnership entities, as well as individual returns, or if you're a sole proprietor filing on Schedule C, that'll be part of your personal return, so that'll be April 15th. Just a reminder again for those of us with us today, it's an open forum show, so you have the opportunity to email in, call in, or chat in questions that you may have during the show today. Um, the call-in number where you can call in is 646-200-4285. Justin from our office will be greeting you and let me know, and I can bring you on as needed um, for your questions calling in live. Also, feel free to just email me. M-A-T at K-K-O-S-Lawyers.com. That's M-A-T at K-K-O-S-Lawyers.com. All right. Well, let's jump over to some tips for the day to get things started. And let me first welcome on Kevin here. And Kevin will give us a legal tip. Um, Kevin, what do you got for us today? All right. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Appreciate it. You bet. All right. Well, uh, the issue I wanted to bring up, or the or the tip I guess I wanted to bring up, is is one um, that happened to a client of mine this week. Um, he's a subcontractor, and he was doing some work for a general. So I know we have a lot of listeners who you know are in real estate. They're the owner. Maybe they've got some rehab work that needs to be done on a property, and maybe they'll engage a contractor who obviously will have probably some subs. So anyway, the, there was a dispute between the general and the sub, and the problem was that they didn't even have an agreement in place. So I'm, I'm, my tip is referencing a blog article that Mark wrote about a few weeks ago, which is, which is that you know even people you, you know, you know, like in this case, my client had done business with this general before, and never had an issue, and so they kind of got comfortable with each other and, and a little bit lazy, I would say, in terms of uh, the formalities of their arrangement. And so, uh, you know, Mark's article talks about handshake uh, deals and email deals. Well, this particular issue that they had with each other is normally addressed in a in a standard um, subcontractor agreement, but they didn't have one, and so. What we're left having to do is is revert back to kind of the default while looking at the statutes and and is there a case on point that will uh, you know give my client the edge? Um, so I, I think I think we're going to win. Um, I think the law is on our side, but it's it's been a, a lot more expensive for my client uh, and a, and a lot longer road to to get paid. Um, whereas if he would have just had a an agreement in place and, and required that that uh, occur before mm -hmm. he engaged with his general, they wouldn't have this issue. Um, so it's a very broad uh, tip, but I think it's one of those tips that it's not new information. But you know, if you're like me, you know, some of the most important things I need to hear on a daily basis because yeah. I keep forgetting. So I think for our, a lot of our clients, it's like, yeah, I know I should do that. I know I should do that. That's not an information. But you just need to actually do it, and 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 even if it's you know your friend or family member that you're going to be doing business with, mm -hmm. you know certainly have a paper trail, certainly have an agreement. You know, um, I don't think anybody's going to be offended if you do, and you know if there is you know a dispute later on, it'll make it. It should make it if it's a well-written agreement. It should hopefully address uh, a lot of the major issues that could arise. So. Yeah, that's pretty much the tip there, Matt. Well, I think you know. Let's build this out for practical purposes. I think if you're a business owner, or maybe you're a real estate investor, and you have ordinary things, you know, common things that happen in your business, where you're hiring someone for a specific service or whatever the case may be, 
you'll you, you know having a form contract that you use when you hire someone that provides services um you know if it's a, you know you're a contractor or a subcontractor you should have a standard form of agreement you use that outlines your services and fees and the general conditions of payment and services and um you know that'll protect you in a lot of situations i think a lot of people who start out you know real estate investors for an example they will skip that step you know and they'll just if someone asks them to give an agreement they give one otherwise they just go off of a one page bid or or something like that and that can obviously cause problems so um over the long term i think it's nice to just get some forms developed in your business that you use to contract for services or work and um and those will help protect you when disagreements arise yeah and it and it doesn't have to be very expensive either i mean i think as a new business owner whatever your business is i mean i can certainly appreciate you know that you need to be mindful of costs but you know, you get to the point where are you cutting corners, and 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 by cutting those corners, are you setting yourself up, you know, for something that's going to be much more expensive down the road? So even, you know, even when you're starting off, like you said, just get a good baseline agreement. I think, you know, with with a little bit of time with an attorney to to get a good agreement that you can use, you know, moving forward, uh, I think that will save you a lot of money uh, over the long yeah. run. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay, well, thanks, Kevin, for that tip. Appreciate it. Now, Kevin's going to stay on with me and, you know, offer some uh, pithy comments or maybe something smart to say every once in a while. So, um, <laughs> Kevin, thanks for staying on. Um, sure. All right, we're going to we're going to jump over now to a um, and Kevin, I'm just going to leave you on live here, so you can mute yourself if you'd like. But I'll just leave you on live so you can jump in and comment as you'd like. Okay. All right, so let me jump over. Josh is calling in from the accounting firm, and Josh is going to give us a tax tip for the show today. And I actually have a question for Josh. So, Josh, you with me? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you great. Well, what do you got for us as far as the tax tip today? Okay, great. So, um, first of all, I'd just like to remind everyone out there who's got a corporation, uh, this would be S-Corps and C-Corps. First of all, the deadline for filing your tax returns for 2014 is uh, March 15th. So that's how right. I gave them the warning. Don't worry. Exactly. <laughs> I gave them the warning in the intro. I went over the tax deadlines, but uh, okay, cool. yeah, that's probably something we could say a million times. So because um, inevitably people will forget or not get it done in time. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, that's just one note. Since the 15th is a Sunday, um, the deadline's actually pushed to the 16th, the end of the day. Of course, we don't want to be doing cool. things on the last day, but that's that's how it works out this year. Um, All right, thanks. Yeah, no problem. So, tax tip today. I just want to talk about some 2014 contributions that you can make. Uh, first, uh, first of all, to to contribute to retirement. Um, IRAs, mm-hmm. both traditional and Roth, you can still make contributions for the 2014 tax year through April 15th of this year. So even though 2014 okay. has already ended, if you decide that you you know have some extra cash and that you want to put that away for retirement, you can still make that contribution. Uh, what about extensions? So. If you extend the return, can you make the contributions later with with, with any extension? Great question. Um, you cannot make contributions later. Um, if so if you want to extend your tax return and you still want to con- contribute to uh, uh, an IRA for 2014, you'd have to make that contribution by April 15th and then file your tax return after that date. So there's no extensions for these uh, these contributions. Okay. Um, all right. And the other thing I want to talk about is uh, HSA contributions. Um, yeah. These are also in the same boat. Uh, you can still make 2014 contributions uh, through April 15th of this year, and this is good because if you have you have to have the HSA already set up. By the way, um, you can't you can't set it up today and make a 2014 contribution. But if you do have that set up and you realize you had um, you know excess medical expenses or things like that during 2014, then you can contribute to your HSA um, and. Uh, still take a deduction for the 2014 tax year. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, and you just had to have had the, uh, I believe, the high deductible health plan by December 1st of 2014, 
one of the criteria to be able to do an HSA contribution is you must have a high deductible plan. So as long as you had a high deductible plan as of December 1st, 2014, you'd be able to um, contribute, sounds like, up until April 15th. Is that the deadline you said? Yeah, that's the deadline, April 15th. Yep. Um, All right, cool. And just a, one last note, both, of, both yeah. of these types of contributions will help you save money in taxes, um, and that's kind of the point. So uh, you're going to you know you're going to fund your health account or your retirement account, and at the same time save money in taxes if that's what you choose. Okay, great. Yeah, I think those are a couple of the most commonly used strategies, and you know it's not going to change the world in your tax return preparation to do one of those things, but it's a lot of those little things. You know, five thousand dollar deduction there, another five thousand dollar deduction there that. You know, when you're doing your tax return, pays off big time. And uh, if you're doing all those things and bringing them together, it really makes a big difference on how much you get to keep versus how much you have to give the IRS. So, um, thanks for those tips. Now, since I've got you, Josh, I'm gonna. Yeah. Um, I have some questions that have already came in. Some of them are okay. tax heavy. Some of them are tax light. I'll I'll take care of the tax light ones. Tax heavy. Yeah. I was gonna try and uh, uh, pick your brain for a moment on some of these. So. Um, if you don't mind, I'll just uh, throw a question your way, and then sure. um, you don't need to stay on, though. But I'll just give you this uh, one question that, that was um, had to deal with taxes and um, fix-up costs on a real estate investment. So let me go ahead and I'll read the question to you, and then we'll uh, get your response on it. And sure. for anybody listening in that wants to send in a question, this is the Open Forum show, so go ahead and send that in, but send it to me. Don't send it to Mark. It'll, you know... Um, I'm, so send them to me, my email, matt, M-A-T, at K-K-O-S, lawyers.com, M-A-T, at K-K-O-S, lawyers.com. All right, Josh, so um, here's the question that came in. The question was yeah. from Gerald. Gerald says, I have a rental property that I fixed up to sell. I have a buddy that's a painter, and he helped me fix the house. I bought breakfast, lunch, and dinner while working on the house. Can I write off his meal cost? Also, what percentage? So the the, the essentially the contractor or the friend working on the house, um, he covered his meals and paid for those meals. How are those deducted? Um, so the uh, the owner paid for the contractor's meals. Um, he didn't Correct, pay for yeah. his own. Is he including his no, own meals? No, he's not including his own. He just says for the for for the person working on the house. Okay. So if it's just for the other person working on the house, um, then uh, those meals should all be uh, tax deductible for um, for, for the, the party who paid. Um, normal okay. meals are only, uh, deductible meals are only uh, 50% of what you paid. You only get a 50% deduction. Right. But if you're providing meals for your employees or, in this case, a contractor that you've hired, then you can take a full deduction for those for that food cost. Um, okay. Great. That was his question about what percentage, 100% question mark. So it sounds like it would be 100% deductible. Yeah, that would be 100% um, deductible. Okay, he's got, a, he's got a couple questions here. And these are great questions, I think. These are some common issues that can come up. So um appreciate you staying on to answer some of these. So the, the next question is, I also uh, took him and his girlfriend for an expensive dinner as payment. That's, that sounds nice. Uh, he didn't charge me anything for his help. What a guy. Um, uh, how is He's got a, one more question after this, but uh, how is that treated? So rather than paying him cash, he treated them to an expensive dinner as payment. Um, and the guy didn't charge him anything else except for that, um, that dinner. How would you uh, treat that from a bookkeeping and accounting standpoint? Huh. Well... That sounds a little bit different, um, since you know they were, from what it sounds like, that that dinner was not provided while uh, while the contractor was on the job. It was right, after, right. This would be a, after the thing was done. He... Yeah, um, it, it might be a little bit of a gray area, but I would think that the dinner um, would be deductible. It could, rather than even calling it a meals and entertainment um, expense. It could just simply be called, you know, payment for the services rendered. Right. Um, we'll just take the cash value of what he paid for that expensive dinner and um, mm-hmm. 
deduct that. So I, I think he's I in a situation where, yeah, he's probably in a situation where he's either going to call that dinner that was payment for the services you rendered to me, and let's say the dinner was 100 bucks a person for you know this friend and his girlfriend, so he ended up paying $200. That you know he'll get to expense that $200, but um, but that's going to be income to this other guy as well. Um, technically, and that guy should be claiming that as income because it's either payment for services, which um, you get to expense, or, or it's not, in, in which case, if you're going to chalk it up and say, well, we were just friends having dinner, okay, well, then it's not income to, to your friend and his girlfriend, and it's not an expense for you either. Um, is that a fair way to summarize that? Yeah, that's very true. That's. Uh, I think that is something important to remember. If you want to deduct it, he's whoever uh, you paid has to count that as income. So, and if you don't want right, to deduct okay. it, then yeah. Okay. One last question here. This has to do with travel property. Sure. All right. Um, one more question. I flew to San Diego to work on the house. Um, that was all I did for six of the eight weeks I was there. The other two weeks I spent helping take care of my dad so my um, so someone could go on vacation, his family. I was working on the house while watching this this father. But the, the so basically says I was there for eight weeks. I spent six of those eight weeks working on this property. My question is, how much of the time can I use for real estate professional qualification? He says 24 hours a day or just actual time working on house? Uh, we would count just the hours spent working. So if it was an eight-hour workday, five days a week, um, you know, four, that's 40 hours a week times the six weeks actually spent working on the, the house, we would take that number and count that towards yeah. the real estate professional hours and exclude the, the other two weeks. Yeah, I think that that was a 24 hours a day. I think was a long shot question, but uh, yeah, unless you're constantly working, not sleeping, then it's probably not the case. Yeah, just eight hours a day, or however long you you worked each day. All right, cool. Okay, Josh, we'll appreciate your uh, insight on these tax questions. Rest are tax light, so I think I can handle them. Um, Thanks also for calling in for the tip. Oh yeah, sure, no problem. Thank you, Matt. All right, take care. Thanks. We'll see you. All right. Well, let's um, jump into the open forum subjects now. I have, like I said, a number of questions already emailed in, so I'll be starting on those questions. Kevin is also with me, so um, Kevin's going to chime in as needed, or I might throw some questions Kevin's way. By the way, Kevin Kennedy is an attorney in the law firm KQS Lawyers. He's in the Phoenix office with me. As I like to say, he's on the east wing of the office. I'm on the west wing. Um, we're both on opposite um, corners <laughs> of the office. So, uh, <laughs> hey, whatever, so regardless of like whatever wing we're each other. whatever wing we're on, Matt. The 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 thing is, is we're not at a spring training game. That's the unfortunate thing here. Um, that is very sad, huh? And you know what? The weather is turning up. If you want to come out to Phoenix, it, the weather is awesome right now, man. Tell you what. Well, uh, let's jump into some of these questions, Kevin. Like I said, feel free to chime in. I'm going to run through these. I'll throw some your way. Those of you who want to email in questions, you can send them to me at M-A-T. That's Matt, M-A-T, at K-K-O-S-Lawyers.com. All right, this is a question from Matt in Michigan. Matt asks, we formed some new LLCs taxed as an S-Corp January of 2015, There has been basically no activity yet except for putting in a few grand into their respective bank accounts, almost no expenses, and zero income. Do I need to do anything this quarter as far as the IRS is concerned? All right, great question. Um, Keep in mind, whenever you have an S-corporation or an LLC taxed as an S-corporation, you will eventually need to start taking payroll from that company. Um, And you'll get an actual W-2 at the end of the year summarizing the payroll that you have taken from the company. Now, if you do not have income yet, as indicated in Matt's question, it is not required that you begin taking payroll yet. So, um, you may not, you, uh, Matt, in your situation, you would not need to start taking payroll since you're not taking any income yet. 
and there's no income being generated, so you're okay for now. But you will likely need to set up payroll this year, and as a general rule, we recommend clients who have an S-corporation, or in this case an LLC that's taxed as an S-corp, um, to begin setting up payroll. That's one of the things you do with an S-corp is you have payroll, and you get a W-2 for some salary from um, running the business. But right now, Matt, you could hold off on that and wait till you have some income, and then at that point, start taking a quarterly payroll. But payroll, keep in mind, is something you do quarterly. It's on a quarterly basis. So if you started this business in January of 2015 and you had income um, in, Jan- in January or in this quarter, you would take payroll second quarter of, or excuse me, you would take it uh, for first quarter, you would report that to the IRS in uh, April of 2015 for the activity that happened in January, February, and March. And eventually you'll just start reporting every quarter, um, at least every quarter, the salary being taken. But right now in Matt's situation, since there's no income, don't stress about it yet. All right, let me. We got a lot of questions in here, so I'm just going to start hitting these questions, and um, hopefully we'll get through them. Anybody calls in, um, Justin will greet you, and he will let me know you're on the line, and we will try and take on any live questions. All right, next question. I'll throw this one to you, Kevin. Um, I'll sure. try and uh, jump into and offer my thoughts as well. This is from Joe. Joe asks, when would you suggest opening? Excuse me. When would you suggest operating two different entities over using a single entity with two different DBAs? Is there any tax benefits if both the businesses are in a similar industry but serve different segments of the market? So, when would you want to use two different, excuse me, two different entities over using the same entity but having different DBAs or names to operate under? Sure. Sure. Yeah, I would say when I get that question, uh, which does come up, um, you know, if your if your current situation is that you have two DBAs, well, you know, and you're and you're considering bringing in some entities to replace those DBAs, I think you have two issues you're looking at, and 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 the first you talked about, which is the taxes, which we can we can discuss, but I think the other issue is is uh, getting a shield of limited liability protection, so. So mm-hmm. currently, for marketing purposes, you know, I think um, I think this question, this client, you know, is holding himself out as, you know, you know, whatever it is, DBA. And for marketing purposes, the 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 customer's experience is that those are two different um, businesses. But for liability protection purposes, if there was a uh, an incident or a liability that occurred out of one of his DBAs. Mm-hmm. Those DBAs don't provide any any sort of asset protection. So, um, you know, not only is he exposed to personal liability for that, but his other DBA would also potentially be exposed. So, when someone comes to me and says, "I've got a couple of DBAs," I think the first thing we want to look at is, "Well, what what's the nature of the business? What are you doing, and and is what you're doing such an activity that?" you're you're going to be better off, you know, not even talking about taxes for a moment, but you're going to be better off segregating those business activities into their own entity, at least at least an LLC so that if there is a liability on business 1, then you've isolated that and so you're not exposing your other business or your personal assets um to that liability. So that's the first point on on this I think is 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 uh, asset protection. Yeah, I think that's the the key initial issue, and I think Joe's question: When would you suggest operating two different entities over a single entity? And I think that's the issue to consider, Joe, is just liability issues and asset protection. So, and as Kevin, as you noted, you know, it, it really that issue is driven by what's the nature of the business and are there liabilities? Does it make sense to separate the two businesses from each other? for liability purposes so you can isolate one against the other if something um if there's some liability that were to occur. Um also, you know, if you have different partners that get involved in the business, that's another reason to separate out those DBAs and maybe have different ownership and different entities. That might be another issue, but um Joe, as far as your question on tax benefits, um there's not going to be a tax differentiation, so 
you know, if you had one LLC and two DBAs versus just two LLCs, um, those are going to net out the same tax-wise. The LLCs uh, basically are flow-through entities anyways. They flow down to your tax returns. So whether all of that income and expense was in one business versus the other, that's not going to cause you into having higher or lower taxes. That's really going to be... uh, that's going to be the same tax outcome in the end. So I wouldn't see a big tax benefit one way or the other in um, choosing those two scenarios. Uh, anything else on that, Kevin? You'd want to add? Um, just if if you know, for him looking at the tax side of things, and I to- and I completely agree with your analysis there. Um, is if if what he's doing is you know such a, such an activity that you know for tax purposes he's finding himself subject to self-employment tax, you know, what he may uh, want to do is, um, you know, he could have two LLCs and they're both owned by his, his S-Corp. And so that way all of the, mm-hmm. the income from those two businesses are uh, are minimized on, on the amount of self-employment taxes that he's paying. Yep. Good thought. All right. Let's jump over to Bart's question. Bart has a question. Um, this also has to deal with the LLCs. I have several LLCs that are owned by another LLC. Um, to simplify my life, I'd prefer not to have a checking account for each LLC. What are the alternatives for paying the monthly bills? Kevin, that's a, that, that I'm throwing that one to you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, yeah, that is one of the, um, uh, I guess, drawbacks of having so many LLCs is well, well, you know, geez, does that mean I have to have a, a separate account for every LLC? Well, I don't want to do that. You know, is each account at the bank have a fee? And, and, and you know, um, certainly there's a lot of work involved there. So it would, it, would, it would certainly simplify your life to, you know, take all of the income from those various LLCs and, and, and just have one, one bank account. But the, the problem with that... Um, is that Here's one of the, the things, news, Kevin? Here's the bad yeah. news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, so yeah, one of the things with that, and, and 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 in all of these, you know, questions, I think there's a balancing act between administrative burdens and you know benefits of liability protection. By virtue of you having multiple LLCs, you know, whatever the reasons are that you set those up, um, for you to preserve the limited liability protection that each respective LLC affords you you need to you need to treat each LLC as a separate entity and one of the one of the consequences of that is that each LLC needs to have its own bank account so i mean you could you could certainly simplify your life and put everything into one account but i think if there was a dispute and there was a lawsuit um and then you were forced in court to to make that argument that you want to use the LLC to shield yourself from the uh you know the other LLCs the counter argument is going to be that well you've basically been operating these LLCs as one LLC so um you're kind of exposing yourself to uh a weakening i guess of the of the shield of liability that each LLC affords itself so what i would do if i were you if i'm looking to simplify my life is maybe really get at why did you set up each of those LLCs in the first place, and and do you need to have, you know, separate LLCs for each activity? And if you don't, then you know, then you you may be able to, you know, consider, you know, dissolving yeah. some of them and and have a, you know, simplified method. All right. So, um, in other words, um, Bart Kevin is um, saying you must have separate accounts, <laughs> so um, you can't just use one account. Um, but remember, the upside of that is you're getting separate liability protection, and that's why you're doing it. And if you don't care about the separate liability protection, then you know maybe you can reorganize. And, um, and I chat with one of the attorneys here in the in the law firm or, or some other legal counsel to just make sure you understand the liability consequences. And then you could operate out of just one LLC if that's what you want, and that can simplify things. Simplify things. All right, let's jump into there's a question in the chat window. I got a bunch in my email as well. We will get to. So, um Al has a question. Can an S Corp hold um or own dissimilar LLCs or participate in dissimilar activities? 
Um, absolutely, that's fine, Al, that you can have an S-corporation, and that S-corporation can own different companies. It can have its own separate business from the companies that it's engaged in. You know, So um, there's no restrictions on that. Just for example, I have my own S-corporation, and my S-corporation owns my ownership in the law firm. It's owned other businesses. It receives services and provides, you know, like my books and things that I do. I receive that directly in my S-corp. So, um, and it, like, it even owns other companies unrelated to the law firm. So, yes, it is possible that you can um, have an S-corp and it can own dissimilar LLCs or LLCs participating in um, in different types of activities. Um, and feel free, anyone, that uh, um, you can answer, ask questions in the chat window and also by email. Again, my email is matt, M-A-T, at K-K-O-S, lawyers. Hey, Matt. Um, yes. So you mentioned your S-Corp. So now for the listeners out there, they probably don't know that you won a race, a biking race this weekend. You haven't told them, have you? Well, of course not. Well, no, it's on my Facebook. So if you follow me on Facebook or on Twitter, you know, you can see my personal exploits on the weekends. But um, so when uh, Matt starts, my so when Matt starts winning, because he won the race, and I, and for for those of you who who uh, are interested, this was not some you know neighborhood friendly bike race. This was a competitive, full full fledged event. So Matt, when you start winning your earnings. Do you think you'll set up a separate oh, yeah, those, for that, or no? That, yeah, the uh, the bike <laughs> the bike race prize winnings will go directly into my S corporation for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, thanks for the example, Kevin. Um, <laughs> all right, um, Al does have a follow up question. Um, why would my CPA tell me otherwise? I don't know, Al. There might be something specific in your situation, but. Um, your S corporation is not restricted from owning different companies. Now, if you have a professional S corporation, maybe you're a doctor or you live in a state that requires that for real estate professionals, you might have restrictions there. Um, but get a consult. Um, we can look through that in your specific situation. But as a general rule, an S corporation is not restricted from owning companies that have dissimilar activities. Um, another question came up here in the chat window. And um, we're going to have to do these rapid fire, Kevin, because these are starting to come in, and I still got a lot by email. And I, by the way, I appreciate everybody's questions today. Um, the more questions we get in open forum, the, the more uh, enjoyable it is for us. So um, appreciate your questions. Okay, back to the multiple LLCs. Can you have a management LLC pay the bill for other LLCs? Um, well, I've had a lot of questions asked about the management LLC and paying and you know paying bills for other entities. Um, I, I would I really wouldn't use that structure. I t we typically don't recommend that as a normal operating procedure to have a management entity that pays for other companies, uh, particularly if they're related companies which you own. It just gets into liability issues, uh, you know. Uh, but you know we could look at your specific situation and. And answer that the the general recommendation, and sometimes un, unfortunately these questions have to be a little more generalized in in our answer. The general recommendation is going to be the company receiving that income and that expense would have an account and be incurring um, those expenses and paying that income. If you have the instances we would recommend a management company is if you have family providing services and you're paying your kids or something like that. Those are scenarios where we're setting up management companies for tax reasons and to help you get some tax deductions. But from an operations and procedural standpoint, that's getting back to a prior question, we typically don't recommend the management company structure. Now, there are a lot of different business structures, and everybody's different. On And depending on what you're doing, you may have different procedures where you have an operating company that is one company, and you have an asset-holding company that's another company. Take, for example, a restaurant. Generally, if we have a client that owns a restaurant, they will have an LLC that owns the real estate. And then they will have an operating company, typically an S-corporation, that, that runs the restaurant. It receives the income, it pays the employees, it pays the bills. 
the S corporation is going to also pay rent to the LLC that owns the property. So you'll have a, a two different entity structures there. It's done for tax purposes there because we want the operational business to own the S corporation, or excuse me, to be an S corporation for tax purposes. But then that S corporation will not own the real estate. We don't want S corporations to own buy and hold type real estate like the the property if, if the restaurant owns the building. So in that in that situation, we would instead have the S corp pay rent to the LLC that owns the real estate. So sometimes you have some um, uh, different questions, or excuse me, some different situations where we separate operational companies and asset holding companies. Um, but generally, we are not going to rec- recommend a separate. Um, management type company except for tax purposes and paying kids. All right, let me jump over here to another question. This is from Rod. I'm looking at investing on a first trustee note with a group of investors and operators. We will be using an LLC for our joint venture. My first question is, what concerns should I have about the other parties investors involved, if any? Second question if we liquidate the asset in less than a year, what are my tax implications, short-term capital gains, etc.? All right, Kevin. So we've got a group of people who would be investing in a first trustee note together. Um, they'll be using an LLC for that joint venture. Um, what's the what questions or or what concerns should they have about the people involved um, that are going to be investing together in that LLC to buy the note? Sure. So on the note, it sounds like the LLC would be the lender. And correct. Um, so so he's just one of a few members of this LLC. And so I think the the broad question is is best answered by I think there's been blog articles that that you and Mark have written about, and uh, and I think it's even been on the radio show. You know, you're basically going in. You're you're contributing your money to this LLC that would in turn lend money to the borrower that presumably is secured by real property, so are these other partners or members of of this LLC. Um, and the general rule is, I mean, I think you always want to vet uh, your partners, who you're going to be doing business with. Um, and, I, and I think that that's certainly true here. Uh, but, you know, as long as you have a good LLC operating agreement and the uh, percentages of ownership and the split of profits is clearly delineated, um, then collectively, mm-hmm. as as members of the LLC, uh, you know certainly the risk is well. What if the borrower doesn't pay? What is the recourse for the LLC of which I'm X percent owner in? And you know a properly drafted trustee, of course, would would allow you to you know upon borrower's default, you know foreclose on the property. And, and depending on what state you're in, of course, the method of doing that and and the best approach to 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 go at that would vary. Um, but uh, you know, eventually, if the if the borrower defaulted, then that would be as the LLC collectively as the lender, that would be uh, your 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 remedy. Your probably your first choice of remedy um, if if uh, if the borrower defaulted, and 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 you if you're in a certain state that holds trustee sales as the as the common method of um, taking the property back when the lender does that, if the borrower defaults, then you know of course you could. Uh, um, you know, sell it to a third party at the trustee sale, or if, or if the the bidding process doesn't uh, produce the the purchase price that you're looking for, then you know, as the uh, collective LLC, you could uh, have the property revert back to you. So there's a lot of decision making in there that I think you need to make sure is clearly delineated in the agreement, so that you know, as as fellow members of this LLC. You, you're on the same page, okay? Well, what are we going to do? Let's decide now. What are we going to do? You know, if the borrower defaults, and and let's yeah. also decide. You know, so the more you can spell out up front, I think, the less you'll have an issue. Because what what happens if half of you don't want to, you know, decide? Half of you says, yeah, let's sell the property at the trustee sale for X dollars, and the other half doesn't agree. So I think the more you can delineate there. Uh, in the agreement up front, the the less of an issue you'll have as as the lender in this deal. Yeah. So, all right. So I think the you know the first issues are just partnership issues, um, Rod. Obviously, in that LLC, and you know you obviously want to spec- specify how you're going to make decisions. And Kevin's highlighting the 
primary decision that might cause you know disagreement of deciding what to do in the event of default and uh, but you could specify that in the operating agreement and just specify here's how we're going to handle if the note goes in default here's how we're going to vote and the operating agreement of that LLC should specify the party's voting rights um so so we know you know who's got what vote and you specify whether it's majority or you know what what the percentage is for um for making decisions so um the other issue to just keep in mind um which is somewhat related is just securities issues and you know whenever your people are investing money together we always want to make sure we're clear on securities issues so if this is a few people you know or even up to five people going into an LLC investing together and essentially partnering um, funds and people are all involved in the business, helping make decisions. They have voting rights. And then we're not as concerned from a securities law standpoint about people investing together like that in that type of a structure. Um, if you're bringing lots of people in here, you know, make sure you get a constant on securities laws. And, and by lots, I mean more than five, certainly more than 10. You're definitely going to need to get some securities work done, um, not just a consult to know your situation. So um, smaller groups of people, it's not as big of a deal, particularly when people um, have voting rights and are involved in the process. Um, as to the second question related here, um, if we liquidate the asset in less than a year, what are the tax implications? So if you sell the note and you have a profit on the note um, in less than a year, it will be short-term capital gains, and that will generate short-term capital gain income. So um, that just means the income comes through at regular tax rates for those involved. Um, you know the partners involved in that LLC, so their profits will be, re be received that way as short-term capital gain, which is ordinary income rates. All right, let me jump over to some of these other questions. All right, this is a IRA question, so. Um, Let's see here. The question says, is there a time letter, is there a timeline for being able to send a demand letter to a person who hasn't followed through on making payments on a promissory note? Um, a few of us loaned out IRA funds unsecured, 40,000 each to receive 15% return in 5 years, due and payable in 5 years. Um, notes were due and payable in 2007. That's been a while. Um should we they mentioned American Pension Services who's under receivership it's kind of unrelated to the question but should we simply try and write the entire amount off as bad investment for 2015 all right so let's um well this American Pension Service might be somewhat related to the question so um this is uh, a tricky situation if you have an IRA that is loaned money or made an investment, and you need to write down the investment or, or simply write off the investment. Now, I want to make sure everybody understands what's at stake here and why this question is being asked, because this is a, a really good question. If you have a self-directed account, no matter who your custodian is, and let's say you make a loan to someone, a, a note investment, whether it's secured or unsecured, then the note goes bad, you're not getting payments back, and um, then what you're going to need to do is a couple things. One, you're going to need to try and collect on the note. Whether you send collection letters, hire an attorney to collect, you foreclose if it is secured, you're going to need to do something to try and collect on the note. If the collection efforts are unsuccessful, then the second step is you're going to need to try and write off the note. Now, why would you want to write off the note? A number of reasons. One is you need to get it out of your IRA. Otherwise, it's going to always show as an asset on your IRA account. And if you don't write off the note, so to speak, and show the administrator that the note has gone bad, then they're always going to show it as an asset on your account. And eventually, you're going to have to take a distribution of that asset. And you don't want to do that because it's worthless. So um, what you want to do is write off that note. In order to do that, you're going to need to show documents to your custodian of the account that the investment went bad and that they're unable to collect. Now, situations where I've seen in the past, there's been a couple of situations I've helped clients through this who have written off notes. The first would be the borrower under the note filed bankruptcy. Send the bankruptcy documents to the, your IRA custodian and they can typically 
write off the note solely based on the bankruptcy documents. If the borrower didn't file bankruptcy but is otherwise uncollectible, you can't collect on them, then it's usually a two-step process of what needs to occur. Generally, a custodian is going to ask for some documentation from a third party showing that the note is uncollectible. Now, I've helped clients establish this in the past, and what I've generally, what the, the last one, in fact, that I did was we had the collection attorney who they had hired to try and collect on the note write a letter to say, here's the collection efforts we made. In my opinion, the note is uncollectible, and this person's not worth pursuing, you know, for the amounts owed, so the note's uncollectible. We used that note, that letter as a basis for showing that the note was worthless, and the custodian wrote off the note. Now, that's in a general sense of how you would handle that. Now, what happens is a lot of the custodians are going to want to send a 1099 to the borrower under the note, which you know, which is what you get. Like if a bank forgives you money, or you know, a lender forgives you money that you owe, they're going to send the borrower a 1099 for forgiveness of debt income for that income. So whatever is forgiven really ends up being income to that other person. So the custodian will also, some of them like to do a 1099 to the borrower, which requires getting the borrower's social security number. If you don't have a social security number, that's a little bit harder to do. Um, so, uh, so that might not be possible. But a lot of the custodian and companies out in the industry now are asking for borrower's social security numbers when they're making loan investments from clients to IRAs so they have this information in the event of default. Now, with respect to this question, which deals with American Pension Services, which was a company that did self-directed IRAs and is in receivership, and the owners you know, had criminal charges against them, uh, they're in a different situation in terms of how to handle this now. Um, there's an order that was signed by the court regarding the receivership. There's a section in there in revaluing assets. Um, you may be able to get this note revalued for those involved. If you tried to um, revalue it earlier, I would look at the receiver's um, uh, plan that was ordered, and I would just frankly contact the receiver. I'm not uh, specifically sure what the outcome would be on your situation now with respect specifically to American Pension Services. All Matt, right, let me jump back in. Yes, go ahead. Real quick, whether it's an IRA as the lender or not, you know, we see this. I think you should always be getting that type of um, personal demographical information from your borrower, such as the Social Security. It can really help in the collection process. So, Yeah, and I even like just doing a basic loan application, you know, because, you know, I even do this with my own rentals. It's like, all right, I'm not, I'm not going to rent this place or loan someone money, you know, without getting some basic info here. Like, where do you work? Why do I want to know that? Because if you don't pay me, I'm going to try and garnish your wages And get, if I get a judgment. You know, I want your Social Security number so I can chase you down. So drawing out that information and application process um, is is very helpful for any investment you're making. Um, and, yeah, good good comment there. Those principles apply regardless of whether it's IRA or not. All right, here's a question that came in from Michael. Um, uh, Michael's question I'm going to read here, and um, it was kind of a tricky question, so Mark actually saw the question and gave me a response. He's, like, got Internet on the um, uh, plane right now, so he uh, he gave me the response here, which I appreciate. But let me read the question here. It's um, a little tricky from a tax standpoint, but it's a good question. Um, I've decided to move my Renatus business, which is a, a real estate education business, from my home into the RV structure. I plan to grow Renatus and soon be and soon to be real estate business as well. My cost of converting the RV structure into an office studio, excuse me, the question is: May the cost of converting the RV structure into an office studio be taken as tax write-off once I establish an entity? All right, now here this is a tricky one, and this is the uh, Mark Kohler response here. So <laughs> Mark's, Mark's answer is RVs are tricky. Um, what it's really going to come down to is is the first part you have to determine is, is the RV a primary home? Um, if you have no other house and you live in the RV, then, note, then the only deductions you're going to take on that RV are going to be mileage deductions that you get 
for going to new work locations or looking at a property, things like that. Um, but you don't get any deductions on the RV it, itself except for that limited mileage deduction. Now, if the RV is a work vehicle, quote-unquote, and it takes um, tools or supplies or, you know, um, to and from your office location, from from your residence, um, I shouldn't say office, but to work locations, then you can write off more. Um, and Mark's question is, can't say 100%, but certainly more than mileage, and we're talking a lot more deductions here. So if you can classify it as a work vehicle, it's used for work, and it's not a residence, you don't reside in it, which I think is the situation here of, uh, of the question from Pat. So um, uh, now it looks like you're going to be able to take a lot more deductions for that. So um, in terms of the cost to converting it and such, those would likely be involved here. Um, those costs may need to be depreciated, though, um, not taken as 100% as an expense. But um, this, again, is presuming that this is not your um, primary residence. And uh, anything you want to add on that one, Kevin? No, just what I've that picked up in the RV well. industry. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's all I could contribute. If you if you live in it, then you have to take mileage. If you don't and you have a brick-and-mortar house, you can take actual expenses. But I'm not yeah, a CPA, okay, cool. so what do I know? All right, we got another question here, and um, uh, this is this is from Leo, and the question was, all right, I have four residential rental properties under a single-member LLC, which I'm the only member and manager. The original cost basis for depreciation purchase for each property averages about 30k. Yes, you can find such deals in Michigan. I know it's California, not a chance. And the properties are all free and clear, no mortgages. So even if you take depreciation account and all expenses for houses, I've made about 4000 net profit per house in 2014. This is the first time I'm making an actual profit on the rental property since I've always had a loss after depreciation on rentals of greater cost basis. So this is a scenario I've never seen before. I believe this, prop, this profit will be taxed as ordinary income, and whatever tax bracket I'm in will be applied to it, Right. That is correct, Leo. So it'll be taxed at your um, ordinary, will be taxed at your regular income rates. I wouldn't call it ordinary income because you know you pay self-employment tax on ordinary income. Rental income, you won't though. So it'll just come through on your on your tax turn um, as rental income, but you'll pay your regular income tax rate. Um, the question was though, if this is the case, instead of taking money from my personal bank account to pay the taxes caused by this profit, what's the correct bookkeeping? Pr- bookkeeping procedure to take money from my LLC bank account to pay for it. How do I classify such transaction for reporting purposes? I simply don't think it's fair to use my personal money to pay for taxes I would owe if I didn't have a profitable rental business. I simply want to use my LLC funds to pay for its own taxes on the profits generated. But regardless of it being fair or not, I want to do what's legal and okay for the IRS. All right, um, good question. I think, uh, Leo, this question stems from um, it, it does make sense what you're saying. I, I appreciate the logical um, way you're thinking about it uh, and having the business pay for it since the business is making the profit. But keep in mind, this LLC is is a um, tax flow-through entity. So the tax liability flows down to the owner. So you as the owner would actually pay these taxes. Um, so And you would just pay those from your personal funds. If the money is actually in the business, you would just take a draw or distribution from the company and pay it to yourself and then pay personally for those taxes. So uh, it does seem a little odd, but um, the profits, losses, they all and the income tax liability flows down to you personally. All right, well, that's all the time we had for questions today. Um, we have... In the remaining minutes here, I just want to remind listeners, Mark will be back next week. I will be on with them as we are now co-hosting the show. We'll be bringing out a new show name and concept shortly. Appreciate all those who have listened in today. Check out the newsletter, which you can get at kkoslawyers.com. You can subscribe there. Make sure you're getting that. We have lots of blog articles and important tax tips and deadlines, as well as events announced there. And lastly, just another reminder of the Real Estate Tax Summit coming up on March 28th in Irvine, California. 
It will be held live, plus for those who cannot attend there locally, you can broadcast it. It will be streaming on the web as well, the website RET. Tax, sorry, retsummit.com, realestatetaxretsummit.com. Thanks for being with us today. Appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day.